You are listening to a message from City Church, located in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. For more information on City Church, or for additional resources, including service times, recommended readings, and additional audio, please visit citychurchpa.org. My name is Joe Gill. I am an elder in training, elder candidate, elder candidate in training, whatever you want to call it. Uh, We're not sure ourselves. Well, of all of the Ten Commandments, the fourth may be the subject of more consternation, confusion, and neglect than uh, any of the other nine. Closest competition would be the second, the third. Really, the, the, the whole first table of the law kind of gives us a bit of trouble. But honoring our parents still has fairly wide recognition and approval. Thank God, it's still difficult to find anyone who disputes that as a general rule, one should abstain from things like murder and theft and lies. Sexuality is a little bit of a free-for-all in the present cultural climate, but most people are still offended when they get cheated on, so clearly some vestige of biblical morality remains. And finally, in spite of the best efforts of marketing firms the world over, the progress of a minimalist style has given a popular expression to the principle that happiness does not consist in having lots of things. Not quite a a direct repudiation of covetousness, but credit where credit's due. Apart from a vague recognition that everybody needs a vacation once in a while, that you you can't just keep going and going and going like the Energizer Bunny without at some point getting re-energized yourself, the Sabbath immediately stands out from the rest of the Decalogue because it, it seems at first, to be almost as obscure as the rest are are obvious. Concerning the quibbles of common people, C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, he had the following observation. He said that people say things like, how'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Or come on, you promised. People say things like that every day. Now what interests me, said Lewis, about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior doesn't happen to please him. He's appealing to some kind of standard of behavior that he expects the other man to know. And the other man very seldom replies, forget your standard. Nearly always, he tries to make out that what he has been doing doesn't really go against the standard, or that if it does, there's some special excuse. And Lewis was pointing out the operation of what some call the law of nature, um, or Romans calls it the work of the law written in the heart. But where does the Sabbath come from? Where are the people who are just naturally and spontaneously aggrieved at not getting a break once every seven days? We don't really have that. So our text here in Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through 18, this can be broken down into three parts. Verses 12 and 13 verses 14 through 16, and then verse 17. Now the text also has a structure which sets the content of the Sabbath regulation at the center, and then it fences that in on both sides with a capital sanction and encapsulates all of it between two statements talking about the purpose and the pattern of the Sabbath. We're going to work backward through the text I'm going to start with a brief remark, springboarding from verse 18. First off, 
what's up with this text coming at, at the end of all the instructions on the tabernacle? Because that's where we've just been. It comes at the end of a long section that includes at least chapters 25 through 31. And perhaps really, you could say it starts in chapter 19 and covers the whole latter half of Exodus. But to summarize thus far, chapter 19 and 20 records the the convening, the coming together of God and Israel for the delivery of the covenant. And then from the end of chapter 20 through chapter 23, God gives Moses a collection of rules and judgments and ceremonies by which the priestly kingdom is to be governed. Chapter 24 tells about the covenant meal where God sat at table with Moses and the elders of Israel who represented all the people to ratify the covenant. In chapters 25 through 30, God gives Moses the instructions for his royal palace and the service of his appointed attendants. And then here in chapter 31, verses 1 to 11, God calls by name the men who are to oversee the work. Now note that mention of work. Because in a few chapters, the work of building the tabernacle will begin in earnest. And one reason that this repetition of the Sabbath law occurs here is that just after these instructions have been delivered, even in their work on the tabernacle, Bezalel, Aholiab, and all the workers who will help them must keep the Sabbath rest. And that's confirmed by the fact that in chapter 35, right at the start, the Sabbath requirement is repeated again, just before the construction process begins. Continuing to verse 17 then. Verse 17 it starts off, we're going to start off talking about the pattern, the, the, the historical reference of the Sabbath. And verse 17 says, It is a sign forever between me and the Israelites, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And that should sound pretty familiar. So we have here the concept of God's rest. Now, the idea that God might desire rest was not unique to Israel. Egyptian and Mesopotamian creation stories also tell about God's resting after creation. When the primary difference between the other pagan deities and Yahweh is that the false gods, they would rest because it was a lot of work to reduce the chaos of the universe into order, or because before creating mankind as their servants, they had to fend for themselves. But Yahweh doesn't need rest from exertion, and he's not dependent in any way on his creatures, but he desires and actively seeks a dwelling place, a resting place. We have... A reference to this in Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14, which says, The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his home. This is my resting place forever. I will make my home here because I have desired it. If you recall, that's precisely what Eden represented. This was, that was God's dwelling place. On the seventh day of creation, God rested in his finished work. He basked in the glory of it. His own glory, the glory of his own attributes, which had been expressed in his handiwork that was being reflected back to himself. And the Bible says God blessed that seventh day and consecrated it. He made it holy. So God's rest of the seventh day was his enjoyment and his creatures' enjoyment of this completed, holy dwelling and their fellowship together. In the beginning, we shared in the Sabbath rest, and the man was placed into the garden to work it and watch over it. Now, after the fall, our work was brought under the effects of the curse. 
and we were shut out of God's dwelling, shut out of his resting place, shut out of God's rest. But hope remained of the promised seed who would crush the serpent and right the wrongs. Hope remained of a restoration to rest. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. We also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope, we were saved. Our salvation our full reconciliation with God and our restoration to his presence and fellowship is a restoration unto rest. This is the teaching of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3 cites Psalm 95, which specifically references the grumblings of the Israelites and their failures of faith on the way from Egypt to Sinai. Psalm 95 also recalls how the Israelites rejected the good testimony of Joshua and Caleb. You remember there were 12 spies sent into the promised land to scout it out before they were uh, going to try for it. 10 of the spies came back with an evil report that in spite of God's promises, 10 of the 12 spies came back saying, "Uh, no, those people are too strong. We're we're not going to take this. Joshua and Caleb were the only ones who had faith. But the people of Israel, they rejected God's provision on the basis of that evil report. And that whole generation of people was sentenced to die wandering in the wilderness. Forty years of wandering, one year for each day that the spies had spent scouting out the land. David, in Psalm 95, speaking by the Spirit, he expressed the sentence in this way. I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. So here the promised land is called God's rest. But it was only a symbolic rest, a shadow of God's rest. The argument of the book of Hebrews, in chapter 3 and 4, is that If Joshua had given the Israelites rest, that is, if entering the promised land had been the final fulfillment of the rest, then God would not have spoken later about another day. But he did. Many years later, speaking through David, and here's Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massa in the wilderness where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that, then, with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. And the, the clear implication of this is especially because David says, today, if you hear his voice, and if you do not harden your heart as the fathers did, you can enter his rest. So Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, the writer of Hebrews concludes, therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. So God's original seventh day rest was his rest in the perfection and completion of creation. And that rest was established eternally and it remained forever his rest. That rest stands as the hope of his people for all time. The Sabbath of Israel was Similar to the sacrificial complex, it was a foreshadowing of this redemptive reality. Let's note just a couple of other things about the meaning of the Sabbath. 
If you recall, the Sabbath was not first introduced in Exodus chapter 20. God gave it a dry run, so to speak, to test Israel's willingness to obey. Back in chapter 16, that's when Israel started to receive the manna. And this was actually the first mention of the word Sabbath. God would send manna six days, and if the Israelites gathered more than they needed on any other day of the week and tried to save some, it would rot and stink. But on the sixth day, they were supposed to take a double portion and cook it up and save half because there would be no manna on the seventh day. And what I'd like to note about this is that not just on the seventh day, but all throughout the week, the people had to depend on God to provide. They were doing the work of gathering and cooking the manna, but they were still looking to God to send it. So here then, the Sabbath is connected to resting in God's provision. And consider also where Israel had just come from. They came from Egypt. And we don't have any good reason to think that the Egyptians allowed them anything like a weekly day of rest. Uh, they were being driven day in and day out. But now that they were following Yahweh, he gave them the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was also a celebration of their deliverance from Egypt, their deliverance from bondage. It was a celebration of liberation from servile work, a celebration of their confidence in God's provision, and a celebration of the ultimate hope of the restoration of the Eden ideal of man's existence together with God. But this celebration was protected and enforced by a severe sanction. It came with a hefty penalty. Uh, verses 14 through 16 of Exodus chapter 31. They say, observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. And what it means that it's holy to you is this. Whoever profanes it must be put to death. If anyone does work on it, that person must be cut off from his people. Work may be done for six days, but on the seventh day there must be a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Anyone who does work on the Sabbath day must be put to death. It's almost like God was trying to tell him something. The Israelites must observe the Sabbath celebrating it throughout their generations as a permanent covenant. Now, it's our tendency as fallen human beings to bulk at what appears to our sin-hampered minds like excessive harshness or cruelty when God has dealings with men. I don't want to spend a great deal of time here, so let me be forthright we don't understand the severity of our sin because we fail to put them into their proper context. When we see something that God does, especially in scripture, and it takes us aback and offends us, it's not a matter of injustice on God's part, but rather a deficiency of understanding on ours. But, just to give a few reasons for this penalty on the Sabbath. First is the matter of life. Why were Adam and Eve subjected to the influence of death and kicked out of the garden? Was it all just over a bite of fruit? No, they were subjected to death because in taking of that fruit they were in rejection and rebellion against the God who is our life. Death is the only possible result of rejecting life. And God is our life. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, 
And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The rejection of God is the rejection of life. It's that simple. Idolatry is the rejection of God, and it incurred a sentence of death. Murder is the assault against the image of God in another person. It is a striking at God in effigy, and it thus brings death. The rejection of God's Sabbath rest is the rejection of the promised deliverance from the curse and the restoration of creation. It is a choosing to remain under wrath, and thus it can only result in death. But there's also a governmental aspect to this. In his book, The Institutes of Biblical Law, R.J. Rush Dooney said this, if idolatry is unimportant to a man, then a penalty for it is outrageous. But modern man thinks nothing of death penalties for crimes against the state or against the people or against the revolution because these things are important to him. Because because for biblical law, the foundation is the one true God, the central offense is therefore treason to that God by idolatry. Every law order has its concept of treason. No law order can permit an attack on its foundations without committing suicide. Those states which claim to abolish the death penalty still retain it on the whole for crimes against the state. The foundations of a law order must be protected. By the way, treason and espionage, as well as various forms of murder and manslaughter, uh, they are punishable by death according to current federal law. And moreover, a soft form of execution is practiced on every hand in our day. We call it cancel culture. Social and political progressives seek to establish a certain kind of order. And they make no bones about using every tool at their disposal to remove people who oppose the advance of that order. They may not actually kill anybody, but they will silence their voice, put them out of business, and render them effectively non-persons if they can. That's a kind of death penalty. God established an order... And man took the serpent's counsel to upset and oppose that order. Besides being inherently evil and worthy of punishment, sin works to overturn the government of God. If God tolerated it to exist and to operate unchecked, his order cannot stand. Sin must be removed. But finally, the death penalty is important for a gospel reason. Quoting again from Rush Dooney, quote, If capital punishment is not basic to God's law, then Christ died in vain, for some easier way of satisfying God's justice could have been found. The altar was a bloody mistake, and God has been needlessly worshipped by wantonly shed blood. But to imagine that atonement is possible without death, or that the altar can be bypassed in man's approach to God is to set up a graven image of man and of man's capacity to save himself in the stead of the triune God. The basic principle of the death penalty was undergirded and set forth by Christ's atoning death, which made clear that the penalty for man's treason to God and departure from his law is death without remission. End quote. And now we come to verses 12 and 13, speaking about the purpose of the sign of the Sabbath. What does it mean that the Sabbath was a sign? In verses 12 and 13 of Exodus 31, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, so that you will know that I am the Lord who consecrates you. The fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath day is, for several reasons, unique 
among the other nine commandments. It is repeated more frequently than the others. It is explicitly tied to the Babylonian exile, even to the duration of the exile. The Old Testament Sabbath law included a year-long fallowing of the ground, one year in every seven, and then an extra year-long land Sabbath in every 50th year, the year of Jubilee. 70 years of Sabbaths that Israel had denied to the land were fulfilled while they were gone. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 26 and 2 Chronicles 36. The Sabbath commandment is also unique in that it is the only one of the Ten Commandments which is called a sign between Yahweh and Israel. So what is a sign? What does it do? Well, the first such covenant sign is in Genesis chapter 9. After Noah and his family had disembarked. Sorry. Starting in verse 12. Verse 12 of Genesis 9. God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on earth. And I'd like to pause uh, just for a side note, just a moment. How cool is it? that every living human being, every bird, every land animal alive today enjoys the benefit of a universal, gracious covenant relationship that God established after the great flood. It's not a saving covenant, but it is a covenant. Moving on. So a sign of a covenant serves in this case to remind God of his covenant obligation. And we might also infer that it serves to inspire gratitude in the creature because it reminds us of God's grace and his faithfulness to his promise. The next sign to look at is in Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 12. Here, God is changing Abram's name to Abraham and he gives them the institution of circumcision. Beginning in verse 9, God also said to Abraham, as for you, you and your, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you throughout your generations. Every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring. Now this one was a sign not so much as a reminder to God as for Abraham and his people. This was a mark required by God. If you will, it was a brand. It set them apart as God's peculiar people. But then coming back to Exodus 31, the Sabbath sign is established using very similar language. Have a look at it again. Verses 12 and 13, the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. And to compare, in Genesis chapter 9 and 17, we have these same three elements that something is called a sign. The sign is said to stand between God and some other party. And the sign has meaning for all future generations. And the sign was especially for the benefit of the Israelites. What for? He says, so that you will know that I am the Lord 
who consecrates you. The word know here means to be aware of something or to perceive it. In this case, it would signify to remember or bear in mind. The purpose of the Sabbath was to prevent, prevent the Israelites from forgetting that I am the Lord who consecrates you. Now, several weeks ago, we discussed the subject of consecration, specifically the consecration of the priests. And we also noted that the whole people of God had themselves been consecrated by God. Exodus chapter 19, verses four through six say, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's language of consecration. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. A person or a thing that is consecrated is set apart. Or to put it another way, it's brought near by God and removed from the usual common or customary use. We do something similar. And I've mentioned this uh, before in one of the More Than That podcasts. Things like uh, you have special towels that hang in the bathroom. You don't use them as hand towels. You might even be offended if somebody does. They're holy towels. Or you have special dishes that stay in a hutch. They are removed from the common use. You don't use them every day. You only use them, if at all, on special occasions. Similar idea. The special anointing oil and incense for the temple were consecrated. That meant they could not be used by the people to perfume their houses or improve their complexion which that's the way that they would use other oils and other incenses. Aaron and his sons were consecrated. They too were removed from the normal use or the normal relationships that Israelites had with each other. There were certain things they could not do because they were brought near to God relative to their Israelite brothers of the other tribes. Now, in the same way, Israel as a people had been brought to God, by God, and appointed as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Sabbath was another sort of divine brand. It set Israel apart, both in their own eyes and in the eyes of other nations, as different, as belonging in a peculiar way to Yahweh. In the ancient Near East, nobody but the Israelites observed a weekly rest day. The Sabbath was instituted as a sign between God and Israel to remind them that they were thus removed from a normal relationship with the world and they were installed in a redemptive role on the global stage. And for the same reason that Aaron and his family were under special requirements commensurate to their station among Israel, Israel was under special requirements according to their station among the nations. Finally, let's address what I call the perfection of the sign. Do Christians have to keep the Sabbath day? Or how do Christians honor the seventh day, the holy seventh day? And I suppose there are some among you who have been hoping that I will tell the antinomians in the room that they need to start keeping the Sabbath. I suppose there are some others who have been hoping that I'll tell the Pharisees in the room they need to leave you alone. I hope by the end of the sermon to disappoint and challenge both of you and set you to thinking. I do think that the question of whether Christians are responsible to keep the Sabbath proves tricky for believers generally. To navigate. So I want to try to bring at least an ounce of clarity to the issue. So I'm going to offer some thoughts. Take it with you. you know, chew on it a while with an open Bible. And if it doesn't seem to line up for you, chuck it. First, the uniqueness of the commandment. While it should not be lost on us, 
that the Sabbath commandment stands among the Ten Commandments, and of course, any command which had a death penalty attached to it should be taken seriously. It, for that reason, we can, we can assume that it, it's tied to some kind of a principle that is truly fundamental. But I still reassert my point that one of the things, one of these things is not like the others. Not that it doesn't belong, but it's of a slightly different nature. The fourth commandment is unique among the ten. Only the fourth commandment is set up as a sign of a covenant. Furthermore, the Sabbath had an exclusivity in the Bible. There's no evidence that any pagan nation observed the Sabbath. There's also no evidence that it was expected of them. When God was about to bring Israel into the promised land, in Deuteronomy, he made it very clear to them that he was not displacing the Canaanites because the Israelites were just that wonderful and deserving. Rather, it was because the Canaanites were so bad, they had to go. God names some of their offenses at several points in Scripture. He drove out the Canaanites because they had defiled the land with things like idolatry, divination, sorcery, necromancy, bloodshed, incest, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, and the sacrifice of their children to Molech. But he never said anything about their not observing the Sabbath. Coming into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is known for several sin lists. They can be found in Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and Galatians chapter 5. He names a bunch of things. The suppression of the natural knowledge of God unthankfulness to God, worshiping created things, sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality, promiscuity, theft, greed, envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, about halfway through, God-hating, arrogance, pride, boasting, disobedience to parents, lovelessness, mercilessness, senselessness, untrustworthiness, drunkenness, carousing, verbal abuse, swindling, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, and factions. And to these, Revelation 21.8 adds cowardice and faithlessness. For all of these things, if they are not repented of, a person will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what the Bible teaches. But throughout the New Testament, one thing that the heathens are never blamed for is a failure to observe the Sabbath. And why is that? Well, because God gave the Sabbath to Israel and not to the Gentiles. They were not expected to observe the Sabbath just like they weren't expected to be circumcised unless they wished to become part of the people of God. For precisely the same reason that being the spiritual seed of Abraham does not obligate Christians to be circumcised, being true spiritual Israelites does not obligate the Christian to keep the Hebrew Sabbath. Nor is there any command in the New Testament for Christians to do so. In fact, outside of the Gospels, in which virtually every mention of the Sabbath is either a reference to the fact that something happened on a Sabbath day or it's part of some disagreement between Jesus and the Jews about what he was doing on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is only mentioned twice by the New Testament epistles. It's mentioned once in Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, which says this, <clears throat> don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, these are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. <clears throat> and then the other occurrence is in Hebrews chapter 4, which identifies the rest that remains for God's people as the final hope of the Christian faith, the age to come. But that still leaves us with the Christian Sabbath. What about what we call the Christian Sabbath? Now, the New Testament does not give any expressed command for Christians to gather on a weekly basis, nor does it ever use the phrase 
Christian Sabbath. That said, it is an appropriate term. Christians are given an express command in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, which says, let us watch out for one another and provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. While I don't think Christians need to ask God's forgiveness for not keeping the Hebrew Sabbath, it is a sin for them to neglect to gather. And it delights their father when they are faithful to the communion of the saints, according to scripture. Now, bear in mind that all the first Christians were Jews who grew up, rightly, observing the seventh-day Sabbath. And by an easy line of reasoning and a most natural and organic process, when they began meeting for worship as Christians, it would be the most obvious thing in the world for them to choose to meet on a weekly schedule. And just as obviously, while they had been formerly accustomed to celebrating the deliverance of Israel from Egypt on the seventh day, they chose the first day of the week to celebrate the final deliverance since that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead, which is the ground of our hope. So, by the providence of God, the apostles, who together with Christ formed the foundation of the church, they set a precedent and an example of weekly Christian gathering. So, while there's no clear command of Scripture that requires a weekly meeting for worship, by reason of providence, and especially by the force of apostolic example, not to mention 2,000 years of ecclesiastical history, Christians worship weekly. And beyond that, it's also appropriate to call this a Sabbath for other reasons. The Christian Sabbath and the Hebrew Sabbath, though they are not exactly the same, they are rooted in the same past. God's creation rest has always had its ultimate fulfillment in the final restoration of creation to his intended order. They have the same hope. They're both celebrations of God's completed works of redemption. One from a bondage to slavery in Egypt and the other from a bondage to sin. They're both an expression of the dependence on God that we have an expression of our trust in him for provision, both materially and spiritually. They both represent our enjoyment of God and his covenant blessings as people who have been brought near by him and turned from enemies into friends. He called them my Sabbaths. They were his, and he shared them with Israel as the people he had chosen. That's what he said in Exodus 16, I gave you my Sabbaths. He shares his rest with us as the people he has chosen and grafted into his cultivated olive tree. So, the end of the matter, does it displease God when a Christian doesn't go to church every Sunday? Maybe, but not necessarily, is what I say. If it was a sin simply because you aren't in church once a week, then it really wouldn't matter what the reason was. You might be stuck by the side of the road with a broken down car, or maybe you're literally bedfast in sickness. If it's all about that once a week part, then you're in sin no matter what the reason is because you weren't there that week. If on any given Sunday, you have displeased your father for not attending church, it depends on the motive. If you're not going to church, why are you not going to church? You've made a value judgment. What is the thing, right or wrong, what is the thing that you have deemed more important than this weekly commemoration of redemption, than the mutual encouragement of the body, and the celebration of our hope? That's an honest question. 
that you should prayerfully ask yourself and you should give yourself an honest answer. Some don't go to church because they despise the bride of Christ. Maybe slightly harsh words, but let's call a spade a spade. To those of you who are husbands, let's put it this way. For those of you who are husbands, if one of your friends comes to you and says, you know, you I like, you I'll take, but I want nothing to do with your wife. Is that going to fly? It better not. You and your wife are bound one to another by a covenant before God. You are one flesh in his sight. So whoever it is, whether it's friends, family, or anybody else, they don't get the one without the other. The two of you come as a package, period. Yet, some Christians think that they can have Jesus apart from the bride that he bled and died for. The bride that stands at the center of everything he's doing in the world. They think that they can say, Jesus, your head I will take, but I don't like your body. And that really is as ridiculous and outrageous as it sounds. On the other hand, you might be in sin by coming to church. If you hold that being here in any way contributes to your entrance into God's rest, that it in any way adds to Christ's work, or at all strengthens the case in your favor before the bar of heaven, you may be keeping a letter of law, but you have violated the heart and soul of the Sabbath because it's about our rest in the completed work. So for these reasons, I personally hold that a Christian is morally obligated to gather with the saints on Sunday. Insofar as, you are, insofar as it is at all possible for you to do. I believe that it delights God for them to be here. You know, one of the amazing things about being a Christian is that you actually can contribute to God's happiness now. C.S. Lewis put it this way, you are capable of being an ingredient in the divine pleasure. You can please God. Because of Christ, you've been made acceptable. It delights God for his children to be here. It displeases him when they disregard it. But I will close by asserting that the principal way that the Christian honors the Sabbath is by repenting of any and every hope of being saved by any meager thing that you may do. And by confessing, if Christ cannot save me, then I am lost. He must do all or else none of it will be done. We have here on either side a sign of a covenant. I don't think the New Testament explicitly calls this a sign of a covenant. But in a very real way, it has some of the same characteristics. It reminds us about what God has done. And like Peter said uh, during the creed, that this reminder of the things that God has done that makes us who we are. Everything in the law, God grounded it in who he is and what he has done. And that gave Israel all of their identity. Same here. So as we prepare to take and share the bread and, and cup, um, for any of you who aren't familiar with the way we do things, it's customary to head around the back and come up the side aisles to collect your elements and take that back to your seat. So, I'm gonna say a prayer and then I'm gonna step aside and uh, <clears throat> we'll give everyone some time to go through and get their elements for communion. 
Heavenly Father, the world is just so full of trouble. It's so terribly frenetic. Evil and sin and depravity swirling about all kinds of unholy works, works of rebellion, works of the rejection of your rule and your sovereignty. Really, Lord, they're all looking for rest, but they're looking for it outside of yourself. And the end result of all of this will be their destruction, their death. We thank you that you have saved us from that restlessness, the, the slave driver that is sin and the devil. Thank you for the reminder that we have here today in communion, in the bread and in the cup. This reminder that the work is finished, that there is a Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God, that someday all of the pain, all of the tears, all of the, the frustration, this is all going to be done away with. I pray that you will help us, each and every one of us, to meditate on these things today and throughout the week. Help us to live each day in the light of the promise of your Sabbath rest. And help us, Lord, to come back to this place each week with joy, with hearts full of love for the brethren, to come together and to encourage one another. For Christ's sake, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from City Church, located in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. We hope God meets you where you are and doesn't leave you, but changes you through the work of His Son. For additional information, please visit citychurchpa.org.